Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs and reporting for ConnectingVets.com. And again, in this next segment, we're going to get political. No, we're not going to have a bunch of arguments, but we are going to talk with yet another veteran ready to make the run to represent his constituents in his home state. And it's something that actually I love doing. Because I think there cannot be enough veterans of either political party, but there can't be enough people that have served in Congress, especially today when geopolitical issues are so misunderstood and things can frankly be so divisive down there. So uh, joining us is Eli Crane, a combat veteran, a small business owner, husband, father, native Arizonan, and um, one of the cooler veterans you get to meet. And I don't mean to put too much you know, to shine a light too brightly on our special operations community. But uh, when you get a guy like Eli, you get a guy that comes with some really kick-ass stories in his hip pocket. Uh, he served multiple deployments to the Middle East with SEAL Team 3, serving our country for a total of 13 years, protecting and defending America's freedom, way of life, and constitution. And nobody knows more about the price we had to pay for war than our next guest, Eli Crane. Eli, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Real quick, as I mentioned in the bio, Team 3, um, tell me a little bit about uh, when you joined. Did you go directly SEAL Team or were you just, you know, an enlisted swab and decks like I was? And then they figured out you can hold your breath for like an hour. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I wanted to be a SEAL from the moment I joined. I actually joined the week after 9-11 and then uh, went to uh, boot camp, Gunners Made A School. And then I went to uh, BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School. I failed out of BUDS the first time I went. I actually made it through the hardest part of our training. Then I failed an evolution called life-saving. And anyway, long story short, I went to an academic review board, and then they uh, uh, told me to come back in a year when I'd grown up more. And so I did that, but it unfortunately said it taken a year to come back. It took me two and a half years. I went to the USS Gettysburg. I was a gunner's mate on board that ship. 
and I did two uh, two cruises on that ship, and then got an opportunity to come back and class up with Bud's class two five six. Um, and then I made it through training. And then from there, I went to SEAL Team 3 and I did three deployments, all three to Iraq. And then I came back after that um, and I did a couple interesting jobs. My first job was uh, in the recruiting directorate. So we went around the country trying to raise awareness in a tar- couple target demographics for us. And so I, got, I did that. And then it was interesting because I got to work with a lot of collegiate athletes and a lot of Olympians and even a bunch of young high school kids. So that was interesting. And then, uh, my final, my final tour was at VBSS where, uh, you know, we taught seals on the West coast, how to take down, um, ships. And so, you know, I had a really good career. Uh, I was very blessed and fortunate. A lot of people ask me, why did I leave? And, you know, with 14 years, uh, under my belt, and I just tell them I didn't come in to uh, get a retirement. I think that's all great if that's what your goal is. But honestly, I came to serve. I felt like I got to do that. I got some of the qualifications I was trying to get and uh, got to serve with some amazing people. And it was time for me to turn the page and uh, move on. Right on. Thank you for sharing that little bit. I've never got that from your bio. Uh, one, about the failure. And having to yep. go back and try again, something so many of us can relate to. And I wish more veterans understood that, like, you know, you might not, you know, your first endeavor might not pan out the way you want it to. Don't give up. Keep charging ahead. Keep trying. And then, two, to hear that you're, you know, an enlisted guy with some at sea experience. Uh, that's the one thing that we share in common that I, I, I wish more leaders knew about is being an enlisted you know, being a guy that has to salute everybody, being the lower end of the totem pole, understand what it's like to know the right end of a of a mop and understand that a lot of the things you do on a ship are not glorious, uh, but they're all for the greater mission. And sometimes I see policy people, which we'll get into in a little bit here. Um, I see our leaders as having such great lives. They came from wealth. They came from opportunity. And they've never understood the business end of a mop. And there's something you can learn because you'll always understand what it's like to be at the bottom as opposed to just looking down from the top. No, I agree. And that's why I like, you know, I like to talk about my failure, not because I'm proud of it, but because I know that that's that's how people can relate to you. And I think that especially going into politics, I think that there's so much fronting and, uh, People putting up false personas, they try and act like they know everything. They've got everything, you know, all together. And it's it's really just a lie. None of us do. And I think that there's extra pressure in politics to present this, you know, facade that you've got it all put together. You know everything. You're an expert at everything. And it's 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 really not true. And I think I think people want somebody to represent them that is that is definitely competent, intelligent likable and also has uh you know real world skills and has been successful in other places i think all those things are great but we all have issues you know nobody's none of us are perfect and more importantly a lot of us have failed at a lot of things and uh, i like to talk about my failure because um honestly i deserved it and i think that's something that a lot of our elected leaders aren't willing to do is and just be honest with us and take ownership and accountability of your failures because i i find that when you take ownership and accountability of your failures people gravitate towards that because they know we're not perfect they know we all make mistakes it was the same in business too i had many failures in business as well 
I think the difference between what one of the things I've noticed in my life and just watching other successful people is the more successful people I, I've noticed that they uh, they see the world a bit differently. They see failure as a part of the process. They see it as a detour sign and not a stop sign. Yeah, indeed. And we could go on and on and on because I know like one of our shipmates, Jocko Willink, gosh, he's preached that in a couple different books, but you take any excerpt from extreme ownership and he's always championing the concept of it starts at the top down, like the top guy, you know, three layers down employee makes a mistake. The business owner needs to be accountable for that. It's not that employee's fault. You can't just say, oh, well, that guy did it wrong on the assembly line. And therefore, that's why the product was screwed up. And that's why I don't have anything to do with it. We need to fire that guy. Now, that's not what extreme ownership is about. That's not what I think the special operations community teaches, which is why it's so cool to see more veterans getting involved in politics, because I'm hoping that that kind of philosophy gets into the bloodstream out there. Um, real quick, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about business because you'd said, yeah, failure in a business proposition is oftentimes your first adjustment period. It's not, it's over. No, it's it, it's where you learn to adjust because it's business. You need to adapt and overcome. You need to find a way to make whatever you're selling work better so that you can succeed and make profit and make money. I've been a fan of uh, one of your businesses, the Bottle Breacher. Looks like a 50 caliber shell or a bullet, you know, but it's got the end of it there that does the business that I like to enjoy, which is opening a good craft beer. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of Bottle Breacher and sort of, you know, that next step you took out of the SEAL teams. Yeah, it started with uh, a gift that I was given. My little brother gave me a 50 cal bottle opener from the Philippines, I think back in 2009. And then several years later, um, all my buddies loved it. I loved it. It's one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite gifts I'd ever received. You know, I, I got to thinking, I was like, this thing is cool, but I think I could make it better. And so we started working on it. Um, I asked my wife if she could help me sell it online. She did that. And, uh, we just, you know, started bootstrapping it. Um, you know, I got to a point where it was starting to pick up success and speed and I had to hire, you know, other veterans to come in and kind of moonlight in my one car garage as we made these things. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I started with a dermal tool and some spray paint, a vice in my, on my workbench and a 50 cal piece of brass. And, uh, we turned it into a multi-million dollar business over the course of many years. But, you know, it just, it just goes to show that with a little innovation, a lot of hard work, um, and being able to build a team, you know, the American dream is still alive and well. And, uh, you know, I hope that it stays that way for my kids. Um, I have a 10 year old and a 14 year old, and that's one of the reasons I'm running for office because I'm very concerned about the uh, prospect in the future that they're, you know, that they have staring them in the face. Now we're talking with former Navy SEAL, business owner, and a guy who's running to represent Arizona in Congress, Eli Crane. We'll jump back into the part of our conversation where we dig into his policy positions. Why do you want to run and what do you hope to accomplish? I want to run because I'm tired of complaining about it. You know, I'm tired of complaining about our government, um, the corruption, just the, the complete stupidity that I see on a daily basis. And I, I think I'm humble enough and realistic enough to know that 
even if I was to get a seat in Congress, nobody's electing me king. I couldn't just go in there and, you know, just start snapping my fingers and changing things. I think it'd be a lot like showing up to war where you got to show up, keep your, you know, your mouth shut, your head down, your head on a swivel, figure out who's who in the zoo, who's, who's friendly, who's foe. And who can I who who can I build a coalition with and go out and actually start chipping away at this thing? And so I, I realized that it is a Congress is a big deal, but you, you're one out of 435 people. And so um, I, I like to, you know, set my expectations accordingly. But honestly, when I look at this country and the trajectory that we're on and I look at what our founding fathers gave us in the first place, and when I look at the recipe to what made this country great. I see that recipe getting diminished every single day. Our founders wanted we the people to have the power in this country. They didn't want they didn't want a big bloated massive bureaucratic government and that's what it's become. I mean the administrative state in the, in this country and in, in our federal government is several million people and our national debt is out of control. It's over like $30 trillion. And you see the folks up at Capitol Hill, you know, proposing another 3.5 trillion right now. And, and you see a bunch of congressmen and, and senators who are thinking, you know, are, are willing to go along with it so they can go back to their, you know, home state and say, oh, look, I got you guys some goodies. Meanwhile, they're not, they know it's not good for the country, but their main focus is getting reelected. And so I think that we need more fighters in, in office. I, I, I personally see that as the only way we turn this around is if you get people who are once willing to die for it in positions to make decisions. You said something a, a, a minute ago. You talked about having more veterans in Congress and you, how you'd like to see that. I'd like to see that, too. And I want to throw a disclaimer out there saying that I know just because you were a veteran doesn't mean that you can't be corrupted or, you know, won't have a personal agenda. However, I think when you were, if you were willing to die for it, it makes it harder to sell it out. And that's one of the reasons that I want to run. I want to make sure that, you know, my kids have freedom and opportunity um, like you and I did growing up. And I'm afraid that if we don't get some fighters in there pretty quickly, it's it's not going to be a possibility for them. I'm glad you picked up on that too, because like there's a difference between when I say veteran, I think like maybe a more contemporary veteran GWAT era guy, because the stakes were life and death. People did sign up for a mission that was, you know, even if you were a supporting role, you know, yeah, things were blowing up, things were going off. We were in a combat scenario and a hell of a mission that took 20 years and is still ongoing, unresolved, but the stakes were that high. Now we'll drill down into some details. Um, okay. Republican or Democrat? I'm a Republican, yeah. Who is it you'd like to kind of coalesce with, or have you talked to the other veterans on the Republican side um, about what it's like to be inside of the machine? I'm thinking of Tom Cotton. I'm thinking of um, uh, Mast out of Florida. thinking of uh, right. Dan Crenshaw, Houston. Have you talked to them and what kind of uh, advice or what are they telling you about what it's like to be in this machine where, you know, suddenly you run for all these great reasons. And then it comes down to caucuses and parties and right. we're voting against the other guy because he's on the blue team and we're voting you know for this guy because he's on the red team. I mean, does any of that bother you thinking of like what's ahead? You know, I think a lot of I think most of it bothers me, to be honest with you. I think it's gotten so corrupted, you know, so partisan 
in so many ways, so, so ridiculous from what its initial purpose was in the first place. And so, so much of this bothers me. I'm already seeing it as I'm campaigning out here in Arizona. It, it is frustrating. And uh, I'm, I'll actually be in D.C. this week to meet with uh, many of us will be up there for a, a, a seal pack fundraiser. Um, and so I, you know, I definitely plan on, you know, picking the brains of many that have been there that are doing that now. You know, and it, it's it's going to be like I said, it's going to be interesting in in so many ways. If I get there, this is one of those times in service where uh, when I when I signed up for the Navy, you know, I didn't have to have anybody vote for me. I could just I could say, hey, I'm I'm willing to go serve. This is a this is a new type of service where you only get to go serve if the people of Arizona send me. And so. You know, we're we're doing everything we can to get a seat at that table. And I think so many people have this idea in their head of what a quote unquote politician should look like. I, I hope that we can help maybe change the narrative on that. I have tattoos. I wear a ball cap a lot of the time. I really don't talk like a politician, look like one, think like one. And if I ever start, I think I've already failed. But I think what we need more of is leadership not politicians. And that's one of the reasons I think our campaign so far has been very successful. We've already made the NRCC Young Guns list, which highlights top candidates across the country. Early on, we've set a a fundraising record out here. Uh, We've got some key endorsements. And uh, I think our message resonates with people. And I think think the American people understand, I think on the, you know, Democrats, independents, and Republicans understand that if we keep sending the same type of candidate, we're going to keep getting the same results. Let's drill into some of the, just the, some of the issues that you want. Um, Arizona border state. What do I need to know about your take on the border? I know we argued for months and years over this border wall. Everybody thought the Trump administration had to kind of this uh, maybe wrong philosophy on looking at immigration. And then there's others that were like, listen, we are border states. We see this every day. Um, I went to college in Arizona. I remember the agriculture industry out there you know, required all different types of people to be in it. But certainly we did have immigrants that were working in, in the fields and, and, and creating the products and the fruits, literally fruits that we enjoy on our kitchen table. But understanding that about Arizona's economic interests, what are your thoughts on border security and, and, and on a national level? How do we, how do we get that right? Right. Well, nobody here in Arizona is up in arms about the folks that come in and, you know, pick produce and then, and then go back across the border, you know, the same day or the same week. Um, what people in Arizona and around the country, I think it are in up, up in arms about is that um, we have hundreds of thousands of people crossing our border. And I heard, I think Andy Biggs, Congressman Andy Biggs speaking this week, close to half of them aren't even from Mexico. You're you're seeing because this administration has opened up this border, basically, um, you're seeing people from all over the globe try and get, you know, a, a golden ticket into getting into America. And I'm going to be honest with you as a, as a human being, as a, as a father and a husband, I totally get that. I really do. I, I totally understand why people would want to come here, why they would, you know, risk their life and, you know, and all of it to get here. However, if a if a country doesn't have a border on the north, south, east, or west, it doesn't have sovereignty. And for those of us that, you know, talk to border patrol agents, talk to law enforcement officers that are actually dealing with this on a daily basis, they'll tell you what's coming through those borders. 
And, you know, sex trafficking is coming over those borders every single day. Drugs are pouring into this country right now. Um, they've even apprehended people on the you know terrorist watch list coming through the southern border. I mean, you have you have Iranians, you have folks from Afghan, you have people coming from all over all over the world coming through that southern border because everybody knows that it's open. Um, and and here's the thing that drives Americans crazy, not just Arizonans, but a lot of Americans. You you have border patrol agents and nurses and doctors being and so many other people fired in the fire department, in the SEAL teams being fired because they won't take a vaccination, losing their livelihood, losing their ability to provide for their family. And yet these folks that are coming streaming over the border are not being back. They're not being vaccinated. They're just being flown all over the country into these communities. And many of them have COVID. So it's not that Americans don't like, you know, the fact that we have an immigration program or welcoming other people. We just want there to be a system to it. We want there to be a responsibility to it. Um, and we want there to be a vetting to it. We don't want an open border. I was listening to a sheriff here in Arizona this last week. He said he hasn't seen it. He hasn't seen it this bad in 37 years. So it, it's definitely an issue. Mm. Just to wrap that quickly, um, we we ended up arguing this last year over concrete and steel. You know, do we build a wall? Do we not build a wall? They're just going to get a ladder. Like, are you for a multi-layered approach to border security where we're, uh, you know, paving roads along the border so there can be easier travel of enforcement vehicles so we are able to get eyes through drones, through other surveillance ways? I mean, are you for a multi-layered approach to this? Absolutely. I, I think any, as a Navy SEAL, like, security was one of my number, you know, one, one of our number one mission sets, you know, and anybody that's ever done security professionally will tell you that real security is multi-layered, multifaceted. It's not just a wall. It's, you know, but a, a wall, a barrier, a fence, whatever you want to call it is a very important part of it. And the people that tell will tell you otherwise, they're not being honest with you. I mean, we just learned this last week that Joe Biden just had a wall built around his beach house. Why did he do that if, if walls don't work? Why do prisons have walls around it? I mean, it's gotten so stupid in this country where we can't even have a real honest conversation about why people have been using walls since the beginning of time. You know, it not only needs to be a wall, but it needs to we need to have we need to give better training to our Border Patrol agents. We need to you know, we need to use you know drone technology, camera technology, um, informants all sorts of different options, if you will, all, all different, all different methodologies to make yeah. sure that we actually have border security. And I go for, so far as to suggest that we should even look at our interests in other countries and, and develop places where people can go in their own nations to begin the paper process. So there's not this backlog of people standing in 10,000 underneath a bridge in Del Rio, Texas, just waiting to come through, but rather they could have gone to some office in their own home country and began the process there and done it digitally so that they're not camping out. Yeah, well, and, and I think that, that was that the Trump administration had the remain in Mexico policy, you know, because instead of bringing this immediately into our shores and into our communities, we, we actually forced our Southern, our Southern neighbor to, you know, help us deal with this issue because they were just letting people, you know, go right through their country into our country. 
And it also, I think it deterred a lot of people knowing that there was one more deterrent, one more thing that you had to get through to actually come into the United States. And so, you know, I think it was, I think border communities were really happy, happy with that because they were just getting completely overwhelmed. Like I was saying, you know, not only economically, but um, they saw, they saw the crime uh, that came along with it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something like I was talking to some of my buddies that are border patrol agents and they were telling me that the cartels have become so emboldened that they're actually starting to shoot at border patrol agents. Now that's how emboldened they are. Um, and you know, that, that, that can't be happening, you know, in, in the United States of America. Right on. You're a veteran of combat. You have seen what tools it takes to successfully, you know, try to control this global wave of terrorism that is seemingly broken over the planet and has just increased in veracity in the last 20 years. At the same time, you, you can understand that not everything that's purchased in the name of national defense is, you know, this golden goose that we absolutely need. Where are you on national security as far as like what you would do as a congressperson? Is it all about a spending spree and showing that we have all this military hardware? Is it about investing in digital technologies? Is it about recruiting a different kind of uh, fighter or a soldier, sailor, airman, marine for the next generation? I mean, what are you going to bring as a congressperson to the national security interests? Well, I think the first thing that you have to do is you you have to make sure that our military is not a social experiment. And that's what I've seen. I even saw it in my, in my time in the, in the military, you know, the, the U S military, any military should have basically one goal. And, and that's to have the ability to protect and defend the people they serve and also the interests of that, of that country. And I think what I, what I've seen is I've seen, our military turn into a social experiment. And, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a, probably an overgeneralization. I, I know that not all aspects of the military are a social experiment, but I, I see too much of a emphasis on, um, you know, on, on that. I see our leaders talking, you know, about, you know, th- things like, I see Millie talking about things like he wants to, you know, get more familiar with white rage and and what that is. And I see a lot of this leftist Marxism that I believe is destroying our country infiltrate our military as well. And, you know, I just see the I see the. uh, um, The difference between, you know, some of, you know, some of the other countries and the way that they're recruiting, you know, their soldiers and and their their recruitment videos and i see the difference in ours and it's it's very it's very disturbing to somebody who's who's seen war who knows what other people want to do to americans when we start making this less and less about who has the biggest baddest most most lethal fighting force in the world and uh who's the most inclusive it's just something that's it's very it's very concerning to me it needs to stop. We need to quit politicizing our military. Um, and the only way I see that happening is if we get stronger leaders in there who have seen war, who understand, um, you know, just what what's at stake. 
and uh, who are willing to say, no, I, I really don't, I really don't care. This is like when I went into the military, you couldn't even, you couldn't even get into the military if you had asthma or flat feet. Right. And it, our society, in my opinion, has gone, you know, so woke, so um, it's so far out there that now everything, you know, everything is about inclusion. And I don't think that that I don't honestly, I don't think that's the best thing for a military military. I think there need to be standards. And I think those like for anybody else that wasn't able to get in the military because they were colorblind or like I said, had flat feet or asthma. You know, the military is it's kind of like a professional sports team. If you can't get it done, we it's not a good place for you. You know, and it, it, it should be that way for a reason, because at the end of the day, when the chips are down and you're being shot at and people are dying, you know, you want the biggest, smartest, strongest um, warrior to be able to pull you out of a fight. And uh, that's not what I see. That's not the direction I see our military headed in anymore. You know, um, and, and I think that's where you got to start. And then after that, I think that you can start looking at the budgetary things, but I do think having a strong military is very important in the world that we live in, where you've got China, you've got Russia, Iran, North Korea, you know, you've got some very, um, you know, some very formidable foreign threats around the world who are looking for opportunity. They're looking for power grabs. And I think this vacuum that, that is now being created in the Middle East is going to lead to, you know, it's already leading to some very, um, interesting. And I, I think also some dangerous alliances. And I think, I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg on what's going to happen. I think we sent a very scary signal to, you know, the Chinese. I think they're, I, I'll be surprised if we get through the next year and a half without seeing uh, a full kinetic war between the Chinese and Taiwan. And it'll be interesting to see whether the United States actually protects and defends its ally. And I think you I think you're seeing a similar dynamic with Iran and Israel. And we've known for a long time that Iran is very close to finally getting their their nuclear weapon. And uh, we sent a very weak signal to Israel that as we pulled out of Afghanistan, the way that we did it, that not only are we probably not going to help you if if Iran does what they say they've always wanted to do and wipe you off the face of the earth. But I think the incompetence shown in that withdrawal, I don't think, I don't know that any of these countries would even want to work with us at this point because of the leadership that we have in our military and the complete incompetence, you know, that you saw uh, in our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. I know those are hard words, but this isn't a time to me, this isn't a time to be diplomatic. It's a time to say, Hey, this is what's going on. It's very concerning especially for us that have been there, especially for uh, those of us that have lost brothers and sisters in combat. And, uh, and we need, we need, uh, we definitely need a strong military, but more importantly, we need strong, competent, um, non-woke leaders who are focused on, Hey, what, what's brass tacks here? What are we supposed to be doing here? You know, we're supposed to be protecting and defending, you know, the United States of America, our allies and our interests across the world. And if we're not focused on doing that, if our focus starts going towards making this accessible to anybody and everybody, um, we're probably diminishing that focus. Do you think with the way we left Afghanistan, with the way we left, even if you look at our interest in Iraq being left, uh, do you think that we've set ourselves up for another 9-11 to happen within the next two to five years? 
You know, I, I don't I don't want to put a time frame on it, but I absolutely think it's a possibility. That's, you know, one of the things that people ask me when I was doing my tours of duty over overseas in the Middle East, they would ask me, hey, Eli, are you you are you glad that you're doing this? Do you feel like it's the right thing to do? Should should we be at war? Period. And the thing I would say is, you know, um, one thing that I've noticed is that these people hate us. These people hate us so much. Um, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about, um, radical Islam, right? And if you study that, and I know it's not even a word that we were allowed to say, um, you know, years ago, but I think it's important that you understand, um, you know, uh, your enemy. Sun Tzu said a long time, know your enemy, know what they think about you, know what they want, know what they're motivated by. They hate, they hate the West. They hate Western culture. They hate Western values and they hate anybody and everybody that won't, um, you know, fall under, um, you know, um, their, their religion, basically you're, you're a nasty infidel, right? And you should be, you basically you should be killed. A lot of people, I don't think a lot of people know that. And I'm talking about radical Islam. That doesn't, that, that doesn't mean that that's the majority of people that practice that religion because it's actually not it's not even close to the majority of people that practice that that religion but um i would answer and i'd say look one thing i've noticed over here while i've been over here and we've we, we've been at this war now for you know 10 15 years is you haven't seen a major attack on u.s soil since this kicked off right and I, the reason for that is because they don't have the the, the time the money the resources and the personnel to wage a war over there and wage a war against us here in our homeland. And so that was one of the, the, the uh, beneficial byproducts that I saw of us being, of us fighting these enemies overseas is that um, they, we, because we were hunting them down in their backyard, um, they were playing defense and we were playing offense. And we'll be back with more from Arizona candidate for Congress and Navy SEAL veteran Eli Crane when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. All right, now in our last segment, we'll talk about elections. And um, let's face it, our last presidential election was a dumpster fire. Not only was our nation divided over the results, the process, and the investigations that only seemed to fuel more conspiracy theories, but thousands of citizens amassed together at a rally and hundreds stormed the Capitol on January 6th, where both protesters and law enforcement protectors died. Now, Eli Crane's website says that election integrity is one of his issues. And he writes, as someone who went to war for our country, there is nothing more democratic and patriotic than promoting transparent elections. But in 2020, Democrats across the country sought consequential election changes that led to confusion, chaos, and distrust in our democracy. In order to restore confidence in our electoral system, we need to reinstate election day voting, we need to bolster polling sites and unrestricted mail-out balloting, and enact stronger voter ID laws and stiffer penalties for anyone caught harvesting ballots or found guilty of voter fraud. Now, like you, I've heard equal claims of fraud and equal claims that it's all been investigated and that there was no fraud. In fact, oftentimes the fraud was a result of human error and not computer systems errors or other things like that. Look, I I don't even know. I honestly don't even know. But I wanted to cover this issue, especially with a fellow veteran. 
because I know he'd tell me exactly how he really feels. And I'll state that it's ironic that before we talked about election integrity, fraud, and glitches, we had one of our own. In fact, the Zoom call we were on totally shut down, and we had to restart the call on the phone. I don't know, maybe the feds were listening and wanted to shut us down. <laughs> but anyways, here's the end of our interview. Eli, thank you for staying on the line and uh, helping me adjust to this uh, technological uh you know, well, there's terms we use for this in the Navy. We can't say on the radio, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, let me see. The last thing I wanted to touch on about this campaign is after just such a vicious year of elections, um, that is the electoral process, how we elect people. I noticed that that's on your website is one of the issues you care deeply about. One of the things you'd like to see some reforms in. Um, talk to me about where you stand as far as the election process. We live in a country where each state seems to get to make its own way. I imagine that that is pretty much how they sold the deal to the states back in the 1700s because they didn't want a central government that was all powerful. They didn't want a king telling them how they do their business in each state. But now we're in this place where... We often don't, you know, folks are say, out there saying, you know, I don't trust the results or I don't like the process. Um, I, what do you bring to the table as as a candidate that says, hey, you're interested in election reform? What the hell does that look like? Yeah, no, absolutely. I am interested in election reform. At the end of the day, broad strokes, what I'm interested in is having very tight, um, accountable elections where that, that can be audited by the people um, who own the elections, we the people, um, without being, regardless of who won, without being called kooks or conspiracy theorists. I think that that's something that, you know, it's definitely a deterrent. If people that are running elections know that those elections can be and will be audited, it doesn't mean there won't be fraud. It doesn't mean there won't be criminal activity. It just means that those that are willing to do it, just like in our our regular criminal justice system know that there's a better chance that they might be held accountable. And that's something that I want to see. And that's something that I don't like about this last election is that we had, you know, people on both sides of the aisle saying that these are the freest, most transparent elections that we've ever had. And if you say, okay, well, show me the receipts. I want to see, I want to see, I want to, I want you to prove it to me. I want to see an audit done on it those same people were then turned around and called kooks and conspiracy theorists by the same people saying that they were so free and transparent. And to me, that doesn't pass the smell test. If you and I have an issue and, you know, and I'm telling, I'm trying to convince you of how, you know, how legit this transaction was that just took place between us. I'm not going to, you know, call you, you know, a kook or a conspiracy theorist. If you, if you want me to show you the receipts, I'm going to be happy to show you the receipts. And I'm going to say, look, I want to move forward with you. You know, I, I want there to be trust between us. I want you and I, you to see me as somebody of integrity. And I want you to move forward knowing that I'm somebody that you can deal with again and have confidence and trust in. And that's not what I saw in this last election. I actually saw the opposite. Um, I didn't see you know, I do believe that our elections have been loosened up um, purposely. And if you actually go back and this, this isn't even up for debate. Our, our elections per the constitution are supposed to be run by the state, state legislators, right? And what happened in this last time, what happened in this election was many judges actually usurped the power of those legislators to change election rule prior to the election 
because of COVID and because of the wanting to protect people from, you know, going to uh, a voting site or a super spreader, as they call it. And there were a lot of things that went on in this election that were abnormal. And so it got a lot of people, uh, got a lot of people, you know, concerned. A lot of people said, hey, there, there were some shady things that went on in this election. I want to, I actually want to look at the results because I don't just trust you guys at your word that everything was transparent and honest and accurate. And so um, some of the things that I'd like to see, I'd like us like to see is uh, us return to um, a time and place where, you know, we had election day or maybe a couple days where our elections took place. I, I think that, you know, having elections that last multiple weeks, you know, it, it's, it's, it's harder to run. It's harder to control. I want to see us return to a time where there's not as many uh, mail-in ballots. I'd like to see more people have to show up and vote in person with a voter ID, because it's interesting to me that we, I just got done talking a little while ago about how we have the United States of America is the number one consumer in the world of um, the sex trade. And so to me, that's like one of the most disgusting things that you can possibly do is to rape or molest a little child or anybody for that matter. And yet, you know, that's a fact. Anybody that works in that industry will tell you, you can go look it up. Many of the, many of the biggest papers, you know, Fox News, CNN, they have people that have all written on this, reporters, journalists, et cetera. But then when you talk about election fraud, we act as if, oh, we're the United States of America. That could never happen here. Well, let me tell you something. Every type of fraud known to man happens in the United States of America. Um, and I've talked to a lot of law enforcement individuals. I've talked to a lot of politicians. And this is the answer that they will give me when I talk to them. They said, well, of course, there was fraud in the 2020 election. There's fraud in every election, but it's but it's not enough. It's not enough to sway the outcome. I think the American people, and especially Arizonans, have come to a place where they say, well, that's no longer good enough. We want we actually want tight elections where we're confident with the outcome, where we, we don't see, you know, there's no irregularities. And, you know, we're just confident, whether it's a Democrat, an independent, or a Republican that gets in, you know, we're confident that our, vote, our voting rolls are accurate. You know, we're confident that all the rules and regulations were followed. Certain individuals weren't kept out uh, as poll watchers. And you saw that a lot during 2020. Um, we're able to audit our elections and vendors like um, some of the folks that manufacturers of these voting machines. I don't know if you're aware of this, but many of those, especially the Dominion voting machine crew said that their machines couldn't be looked at internally because if if there was an investigation if those machines were you know torn apart and looked at to see what they were capable of were they capable of being hooked up to the internet they were suing everybody who was trying to do it or even talking about it and saying that um their intellectual property was in danger of being exposed well that's something that i have a massive problem with the way I see it is if you're involved in the elections of national, local elections of any country, you know, people should be able to examine your software, you know, your machines to make sure that they are calibrated. 
that they are in full functioning order and they're they're not susceptible to being compromised. To me, that's just an absolute no brainer. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to see all of our elections audited. And I may be alone in that, but those are some of the things that I would like to see implemented to make sure that we have tight elections. And obviously, I'm not a Joe Biden fan. I voted for Donald Trump. I wish, you know, Donald Trump, you know, would have won that election. But I'll tell you this, I would rather see my guy lose and the other guy or the other gal win, but know that it's a tight, transparent, um, accurate election. And right now, I do not believe that our elections are tight. I don't believe that they're accurate. And furthermore, I don't believe they're transparent. And all that you have to watch to know that to be true is how the other, you know, how, and, and I'm talking about Republicans. I hope people understand that in Arizona, the Republicans in Arizona control um, our elections. So I'm, this isn't a partisan issue with me. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that I want to make sure regardless of Democrat or Republican, that we have the ability to audit and take a look at and take a look at those results because those results, these elections belong to we, the people. And so that's not what happened. That's not the behavior that you saw. You saw, you saw the people that ran the elections fight tooth and nail to make sure that, you know, audits weren't done. They didn't cooperate. They still haven't completely cooperated. There are several pieces that the audit asked for that, that, that were never turned over. And many, many things that were deleted, you know, from hard drives and databases. And, you know, it's, it just, it stinks to high heaven. And I just want to see us once again, have elections that people, regardless of who wins, they can sleep at night knowing, yeah, we still have a democratic Republic where my vote doesn't count more or less than anybody else's. Right on. Uh, Do you think Trump really won and the election was stolen? You know, I, I'm not, I, I'm not going to go as far to say that. I believe that there was massive fraud in this last election, but I'm not the type of guy to typically just, you know, um, you know, weigh in on something without seeing seeing the results and being um, completely convinced with data and evidence that that was the, you know, that's the case. But one of the I, one of the things that I can tell you is somebody who's who owns a business, who's had a bit, my business audited, the people on the other side of the aisle that um, were, have been trying to thwart these audits from the start, I'm telling you right now, they're not behaving as innocent people. I, I gave you a personal example. If you and I had an issue and you called me a crook or a fraud, how I would, how I would interact with you, especially if I wanted to have a relationship with you in the future, I would want to, I would want to actually bring you in and show you, Hey, I would want to show you the receipts. I wouldn't want that looming in, in our friendship and our relationship in the future. And that is not what happened. Um, and that, that's something that it bothers me knowing that when our founders framed this country, they wanted we, the people to have the power. These are our elections. We should be able to look at them. We should be able to audit them. We should be able to look at the science, the evidence, the data without not only without being disparaged and called names, but with transparency. And here, here are the routers. 
here's everything. Here's the ballots. If you want to go do a canvas and, and see if five people voted from that house or that empty lot over there, you can do that. And if some people don't even know this, but Merrick Garland and the, the, the Department of Justice sent a letter to Arizona saying that if if uh, the folks conducting the audit did a canvas following, which they said that they were going to do, um, that they could be um, treated as, you know, as criminals and they could be prosecuted. And that, I mean, come on, does that make any sense? Why would anybody in the Justice Department send a letter to people that want to take the actual results of the evidence of the election, go around? and verify that somebody from 1375 East Elm Street actually lives there and voted for so-and-so and so-and-so. That doesn't make any, that doesn't make any sense if you are about transparency and you're about accuracy and honesty. And so I do believe there was massive fraud in this last election. I want to see, I would like to see, um, you know, I would like to see audits across the country. I would like to see our elections tightened up in the future. And if you don't want to see that, um, then first of all, I'm not a, I'm not a candidate that you should support because that's something that, you know, I hold very near and dear. And I think the moment that we lose the ability to not only um, be represented by the people we vote for, but to actually cross check and see if those are actually the people that we're voting for, um, I think we've lost this country. That's what happens in dictatorships all over the world. Everybody knows it. I've actually, I actually have personal friends that work in some three-letter agencies um, in our country that their job was literally to go overseas and interfere in other people's elections. I've had conversations with you know, some of these folks, and they're the ones that are most worried about it because they see the same type of stuff now happening here. And so um, I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot for people to digest and consume. And I understand why it's such a partisan issue and why there's nobody even wants to believe that. I don't want to believe that there's fraud in, in, in our elections. But I also don't want to believe that we're the number one consumer of sex trafficking in this country. But yet that's a fact. And if I if I get an opportunity to go to Congress, it's something that will be a focus of mine. Lastly, would the federal government here be able to help that end to be able to help make free and fair elections if they kind of stepped in and took ultimate authority over presidential elections and said, we're going to design a system, a software. We're going to, I mean, uh, we're going to, we're going to have voting booths in every Walmart and at Home Depot and Lowe's across the country. We're going to make it accessible to everybody. We're going to make the software and the code transparent so that anybody that wants to audit it can see it, but we're going to make a constitutional amendment to make sure that elections are overseen by a federal authority rather than this patchwork quilt of 50 states, all with different rules. Is that something that you could get on board with? It's possible. I would be very skeptical of it from the start um, Hmm. just because I don't, I don't trust the federal government. And I think that would be giving the federal government even more power when they've, to me, they've shown time and time again, that not only do I not think they're capable of running a free and fair election or designing that, 
they can't even they can't even run they can't even balance a budget they can't even propose a budget for a year you know and so like take covid-19 for example and just how this country handled that basically your quality of life during the covid pandemic so much of your quality of life depended on what state you lived in right people in florida and texas and even in many cases arizona where i live for the most part we didn't have it nearly as bad as people that lived in places like california chicago and new york city right and so that's one of the reasons that i think federalism is so important in having state state rights is because many of our founders understood that if the federal government got too bloated and too out of control you could start to see um, you could start to see the shadows of tyranny forming and that's basically the more you consolidate power at the top the more you're relying on the people at the top and leaders not to be corrupted not to be wicked not to be immoral people and I understand what you're saying because it is, you're right, it is a patchwork. It is a patchwork. And it, that patchwork all comes together to, um, you know, create this summary of, you know, result, right? Especially when we're talking about a, a national election. However, I mean, if, if, if the federal government can't even pass a budget, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you trust them to be able to run a free and fair election? Yeah. And I'll say based on not only your examples, but my own experiences. Yeah. I've seen very little that the federal government does with efficiency. And in my questioning about should the federal government oversee it, I I find it almost funny because it's nuanced with my vision of like Google developing a system that would help it and then become proprietary that nobody could ever use except for the federal government. The same way we print money, you know, nobody else can use those plates. Nobody else can use that technology to make our dollar bills and our whatnot. Um, but it's funny, even in the, uh, even in asking the question, my vision is radically different than just the federal government operating it. To me, there needs to be an entity in there that creates a, a methodology that we can employ in this country that only the federal government can use, but it is not by the design of the federal government. It is only by the mere execution that we allow all 50 states to operate and play the same game. So when we add up the score at the end of the day, Everyone played by the same rules. Everyone used the same system. Everyone had the same machines. Right on. I hear you. But but uh, yeah, brother. Well, I wish you the best. Eli Crane, um, if you want to learn more about your stance on things and how you would benefit the great state of Arizona, check out EliForArizona.com. And, uh, you know, as my Navy shipmate, man, I appreciate you sharing me the details about coming up, uh, you know, before Buds and about, uh, you know, all the things that you've done and your detailed explanation of some of the policy positions, which are oftentimes just so quick to be put into a 30 second or a 60 second commercial. And nobody really gets to look under the hood. You gave me a damn good look, Eli. I really appreciate you, sir. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.